You're about to get an up-close look at the future of automotive technology. This is AutoLine. Recently, we had Dr. Alan Todd, the head of all research and development at General Motors, on the show. He talked about the future of automotive batteries and electric cars, but I wanted to have him back because we barely scratched the surface on a lot of other technologies that are about to revolutionize the automobile. For example, how would you like to have the technology that would make it impossible for one car to crash into another? Or how would you even like to have cars that could drive themselves? Despite all the problems that it's been through, General Motors is actually on the leading edge of this kind of technology, and that's why I wanted Dr. Alan Taub back to bring us up to speed about this kind of technology and learn about when we might see it in the showroom. And joining me on my journalist panel today are Sam Abulsamid of Autoblog.com and Paul Eisenstein of the TheDetroitBureau.com. You're about to learn a lot more about the technology that's going to revolutionize the automobile as we know it, and we'll be back to kick off that discussion right after this. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to this edition of AutoLine Detroit, where our guest today is Dr. Alan Taub, the Vice President of All Research and Development at General Motors. Great having you here back on AutoLine Detroit. It's a pleasure to be back, John. Also joining us today are Sam Abulsamid from Autoblog.com and Paul Eisenstein from the DetroitBureau.com. Great having you guys here as well. Pleasure to be, to be here. with you. Dr. Todd, you were just named Vice President of Research and Development at General Motors, uh, replacing Larry Burns, who had been there quite a while. Any changes coming up? You, you see where you might want to take R&D in a different direction, or you got some pet projects of your own you really want to get going on? Well, I, I think the changes you're going to see are not associated with the transition from Larry to me, because we, we shared an ante room for nine years. He hired me into the company. We were clearly running to the same agenda. I think the changes you're seeing are really associated with the new GM that's emerged. Um, first of all, we've taken R&D, and you know, R&D means the science lab job, but also responsibility for the advanced technology portfolio across manufacturing, across powertrain, across vehicle. And we've put all that under Tom Stevens and product development, including planning. If you think about what life was like in the old GM, challenging, global, but lots of places we had to go to have decisions made. Right? right now, all the key decisions about technology really roll up to Tom in product development. So you report to Tom Stevens? I report to Tom Stevens and where did, now. who did Larry Burns report to then? Larry had gone into the CEO, so he went into Rick and then Fritz. Um, the key is, though, R&D is still R&D. The science lab charter is still breakthrough technology. The advanced technology role is to get the science turned into technology with engineering and then inserted into product. The way we've structured the company now, though, it's all integrated under product development. We clearly get voice of marketing from the marketing organization, and that affects our technology plans. But in a sense, we're converging the technology plan and the engineering plan and the cycle plan one level down in the company in a culture that's supposed to be faster. And I'll tell you, 
I'm not sure the engineers are seeing it yet, but we're clearly seeing streamlining of the company. I mean, I'm seeing decisions made that would have been made, you know, being made in a room where a year ago we said, let's go study it. Uh, it really does feel like the new GM, and, it, and technology development's going to be easier. If you go back to the 60s, the 70s, even into the 80s, General Motors did a lot of pure research. I mean, you guys even designed, I think, the, the LEM that NASA put on the moon, right? Didn't as well as the mechanical heart for the first open heart surgery. Right. Now, it seems to me, going forward, GM's not going to do pure research like that anymore. Isn't this going to be much more applied research and applied specifically to what's going to show up in the showrooms? Well, I actually think that charter ended uh, in the mid-90s, and when I joined in 2001, you know, any vestige of it was gone. The key is it's the exploratory, fuzzy front end of innovation that the labs do with deep technical people. The problems are defined there. We have world-class researchers, National Academy of Engineering members, and we work with universities where we get a lot of the basic research done, but it's clearly on applied problems. Um, the key, I think, in the newly emerged GM, simpler brand structure, cleaner decision-making environment. And so one of the challenges isn't the question of you know, science for science or science for application. It's with the revolution of technology we're experiencing which bets are we choosing to make? You can't afford to cover every single alternative. And so getting that guidance, getting the voice of consumer through marketing for earlier down select on where GM's gonna win in the technology race, you know, that's what's gonna distinguish us. Well, you have a fuel cell chunk, if you will, over there, and you have batteries. Uh, we were hearing outside that for a while it looked like GM was gonna start backing off of its uh, fuel cell effort, that it really needed to put the dollars, limited dollars, into the, uh, into the battery side. Have you, what, am I correct in that? Were you considering backing off? And where does fuel cell, cell stand now in terms of getting its fair share of money? Well, I think we've always had a balanced, consistent advanced propulsion plan. Improve today's engine, work on partial electrification, both with soft and strong hybrids, our two-mode hybrid, the most efficient in the industry. And then the, what we still see as the end game is the electrification. And as we, you know, we've talked about before, we need both solutions. If we're going to have full range and large vehicles and small urban vehicles, there's a home for battery plugins, there's a home for fuel cells. And by the way, fuel cell vehicles need a battery on it for regenerative braking. In the propulsion game, we're covering what we believe are going to be the options that will be in place in the market. Well, we have to be a little more selective is on the rest of the vehicle, right? Am I going to do active front steer or active rear steer? Um, the infotainment space is exploding. Uh, you know, we've clearly picked our, our winning play with OnStar and Telematics, but we're going to move into the Wi-Fi uh, connected as well. It's really managing the portfolio so we can get a better syncing of where we put our resources, when it's ready, synced with the cycle plan. And with the reduction of brands in North America, sort of the greater Chevrolet um, commonization around the world, trying to map when we need what technology is, is just becoming, it's not easy, but it's becoming simpler. And 
we're going to get clearer directions on which of the technologies we're going to play on. Talk a little bit about a technology I find very exciting that GM's been on the forefront of, this vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication, sure. where you can literally make it impossible for cars to crash into each other. When I first drove some of the early prototypes that you guys had designed, they were talking 2013, 2014. Where's that stand, and is that time frame still realistic? Well, first, let, let's talk about vehicle-to-vehicle, -vehicle, which is an area we've chosen to take the lead in in terms of technology development and enablement, is one element of the move towards vehicles that don't crash and autonomous. What do you need to know to go autonomous? You need to know, where am I right now? That's been technology been developed by others for us. It's called global positioning satellites and digital maps. What's the extra thing I now need to master as an automotive company? What's locally around me? So we need 360 degree situational awareness. Today, we have vehicles that can do that. It's a large number of expensive sensors, radars, vision systems, ultrasonic, LIDARs, which is a, a light version of radar. What vehicle to vehicle does is allows us, particularly once we fully penetrated the fleet, by having vehicles tell each other how fast they're going and how far away, I can start to reduce some of the required sensors on the vehicle. So first, it enables sensor elimination and reduction, so I get cost reduction, more affordable. But it goes beyond that. This vehicle is talking to an ad hoc network well in front and behind you, and we, we will know what a vehicle that you cannot see, right, what I call the carbon-based computers, and, I can't see that that vehicle ahead of me has gone into a skid and stopped. It's, out, it's over the hill or it's out of my visible range. The vehicle of vehicle communications, I'm going to get that. So I know where I am. I know where I want to go. I know what's around me. That's where the vehicles that won't crash will come. But let's put well, that in perspective. How long in a car park of, what, 200, how many million in this country? 20, 30 20, million. Yeah, 200 million. How long does it take before we really have enough of a network that this can have any real effect? Well, first, our plan when we get into this would be part of our OnStar module, right? Because this is a dedicated receiver that we could add to our OnStar module. As you know, we proliferate OnStar across a large number of fleet. It turns out before you start to get any impact, so that there's enough vehicles on the road so at least you're getting a signal, right? We need about, depending on which particular feature we're looking at, somewhere between 3 and 5% fleet penetration. Um, and by the way, you can't just play this one OEM. You know, we're working in consortia to develop standards. There's a transition period where you'll have some augmentation of sensors, right? So a vehicle so equipped will see the vehicle down the road, but I can't yet thrift the sensors off my vehicle. At full penetration, we start to get the cost-reduced play. Remember, I've got to transition the whole fleet. On vehicle-to-vehicle, -vehicle, what we recently demonstrated is an aftermarket kit where we learned how to package it, something you could mount you know, on your windshield, and it'll, Put it in your phone, maybe. 
the question on the phone technology, what we do third-party device accommodation and what we do embedded depends on how much information we want to send. Um, but your point is that this is going to be available in the aftermarket as well, so you don't yeah. have to wait for the whole so fleet to, to flip over. So you can retrofit existing vehicles yeah. with at least and some so, of the and so, so the vehicle-vehicle technology still needs some standards development, still needs the feature robustness. Remember, we're talking about safety. You don't go out 96%, you go out 5.9s robust. We're targeting the technology to be ready in the 2014-2015 time frame. By the way, let's talk about autonomous driving a little bit. Well, that's my favorite topic. I think that is the biggest breakthrough coming for the automobile when it finally does hit. Sure. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm still staying true to a position I took in 2004 where I said in 10 years you would see limited autonomy on highway. Well, the fact is we're rolling out lane keeping. We're rolling out full stop-and-go adaptive cruise. We're, we're still telling you, keep eyes on the road, hands on the wheel, foot on the, on the pedals. But when you think about it, those two technologies, plus we have an augmentation still in the lab, you put your turn signal on, the same system that's telling you there's someone in your blind spot. You know, so first we're going to warn, well, put the turn signal on, that vehicle will be able to change lanes. So you're going to see a incremental walk to limited and then full autonomy. It'll happen first on highway. And then you know from the DARPA Grand Challenge, I mean, important point there, we may have won that race, and I know you were there, but six other people crossed the finish line. Right? This technology just now needs to be, you have a proof of concept. It's now about a robustness and cost. Hmm. I personally see, and that's what my researchers are targeting, by about 2020, the technology readiness for city autonomous driving. So Full autonomous driving? Technology readiness. Let's not yeah. confuse you know, on the road and there, because then it's a matter of proving robustness, hardening, getting on. So about 2015 highway, limited autonomy, 2020 city. Um, this is, a, this is taking advantage of Moore's law and the electronics revolution. The question becomes, where is it going to happen first? Right? Which, which there, there are already cities like Singapore or countries saying, I am going to make a connected, vehicle, a connected infrastructure. Um, our goal is to put maximum smarts on the vehicle, minimum the infrastructure. But the race is on. And here... It's one thing to be providing good things for the environment. And by the way, that's our challenge, sustainable. Vehicles that don't crash, blindside zone alerts, limited autonomy. Now I'm in consumer discernible differentiation. And what are some people telling us? Right? They get on the road. We know, unfortunately, people are doing things that distract them from driving. And we're developing all sorts of technology, you know, to do audio, text messages, and that. Right. I go on the road. You know, not all of us live in Detroit and love to drive cars. Some people are telling us that driving is the distraction. <laughs> so at what year do we have the car that will run to the cleaners and pick up my laundry for me? While you sit in bed? 
you're talking now about the urban environment. Um, again, well, if you want to go spend the millions we did on our one prototype with Carnegie Mellon for Darwin Grand Challenge, we could have a discussion. By about 2020, our technology roadmaps converge on robustness and cost. So you'll begin to see the early elements of that in the city, urban driving, and again, by middle of next decade, you're going to start to have the beginnings of that on highway. It's you, fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, I was just going to say, uh, beyond just the, the safety and convenience and technological selling point aspects of um, autonomous driving and vehicle-to-vehicle and vehicle-to-infrastructure communications, there's also a real environmental impact as well. Because if, if you can eliminate crashes, reduce congestion on the road, I mean, if you keep all the car, I mean, one of, you know, the big problem that we run into on the roads today is all of a sudden traffic slows down for right. no apparent reason. You know, if you've got vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications, you can dramatically reduce that or even eliminate that. The now all of a sudden, you've, jam. Yeah, you've got cars that are cruising along at constant speed on the freeway. Instead of slowing down, speeding up, you, you can, you know, we, we already know the single biggest factor in fuel efficiency is the driver. Right. Yeah, um, you, know, you can take people, take different drivers, put them in the same car, they can get 20 miles per gallon or 80 miles per gallon, yep. depending on how they drive. If you can factor that in with these technologies, you can have a huge impact on fuel consumption, emissions, and, and the Absolutely. sustainability. So, and there's really two aspects you mentioned. Let, let me talk about the fuel aspect first. We're going to be putting on the Volt ways that the car will be telling the person both on the vehicle and potentially through a website, right, that they would go to. You know, if you were driving a little differently, your fuel economy or your, fuel, your range might be there. Part, part of the advantage we have with this changing of the propulsion system is the ability to re-educate the consumer and let them make their decisions about the balance of fuel economy and performance. Now, um, if you're the person behind them, right, you have to do it. So that's the beginning of this interaction. You talk about the congestion problem. We, we have traffic management models. Right? You know, so mathematical models that, that look how vehicles go. We've looked at what contributes. You know, if you look at how much does bottlenecks tie up traffic? How much does intersections? How much do collisions? Right? And if I'm sitting here in my role of having to make sure there's a sustainable technology solutions for a sustainable personal mobility one. We talked before about how to clean up the tailpipe, how to diversify the energy base. We talked about the vehicles that don't crash. Congestion and parking spots are the other two inhibitors to sustainable growth of the industry. Um, I'm from New York City originally, before I moved to Motown. My nuclear family's still there. My nieces and nephews have migrated out of the suburbs and into Manhattan. The few that have cars, and that's, they, the cars they have are sitting in their parents' lot, driveway, in the suburb. It costs as much for them to park their car in Manhattan as it does to lease it. So this ability now to use this connected vehicle infrastructure to manage flow, the no vehicle crash, and, and, and manage throughput at intersections, um, that's going to be the solution to the congestion problem. Mm -hmm. 
your, uh, your predecessor often got into uh, another subject, which is the change in the basic appearance and, and overall design or architecture sure. of the vehicle. It's something we should talk about here because whether it's through connected technology or through new powertrain technology, there is no reason that the vehicle has to look like the one that we have come to know in various minor revisions over the last hundred years. Or you could say over the past thousand years, if you go look at the horse-drawn wagon. Um, the beauty of the electrification of the vehicle is going to allow us to separate the mechanical connections to the driveway. So all of a sudden, I'm starting to see unique ways to package. Right? You know, our vehicle packaging engineers now have degrees of dimension they didn't have before. But one of the biggest changes in architecture is going to be when I get to that world where vehicles don't crash. If you look at particularly what's, what's driven all the weight and all the structure in the vehicle since the 60s when we start, um, it's crash. If I can truly go to a world that vehicles don't crash, or I get throughput in megacities with vehicles that run at lower speed and still get the same throughput, and my crash requirements change. Now I'm really totally changing my constraints on vehicle architecture. Plus, if it's driving itself, you know, now it's a living room that's moving, right? Although I happen to be of, I think, a non-trivial group that says, I want to be able to drive when I want, mm -hmm. right? And so our autonomy solution has to be compatible. But, I mean, the bottom line is the DNA, because you've heard Larry talk about this in the past, the DNA of the vehicle was set by 1910 for 80 years, 90 years. We've been doing an awful lot of good science and engineering and basically refined it. <laughs> We're now in the period of reinventing it. Right? And it's going to happen in my lifetime, I'm convinced. I totally agree, and that's why I said I, I believe uh, vehicle to vehicle where crash cannot occur and autonomy, which is going to open up mobility to little children and the most senior of citizens who no longer have to worry about driving is what is really going to revolutionize the car more than worrying about what kind of propulsion system or fuel that it's going to be using. And I agree with you. I, this is going to happen in our lifetimes. In fact, the way things are going with how people are living, it might even be happening within our careers. Yeah. <laughs> well, and remember, at least in the U.S. market, the baby boomers have, you know, have sort of dominated. I'm one of them. Maybe that's why I feel that way. But the politics, the infrastructure, the suburb, are the baby boomers. If we have an option to extend personal mobility, for aging baby boomers. You're gonna sell a lot of cars. I mean, this is an idea I heard Chris Baroni Bird talk about you know, two and a half years ago yeah. um, you know, as, as a follow-on project after the sequel program was done, is this whole idea of you know, smaller personal mobility vehicles and you know, incorporating the autonomous driving capability into that to allow people that aren't able to drive for whatever reason to still get around. I mean, the, the Puma concept, you know, a lot of people laughed at that earlier this year, but I mean, that's, that's the first step in that direction, I think. And, you know, 
Larry Terry, Chris is still with us, <laughs> reporting to me, and he's still coming up with those great advanced concepts. You saw our Puma demonstration in New York. Um, and whether the vehicle is this two-wheeled with the balancing, whether you had a third or fourth wheel, because we've got various versions of that going around, the idea of a small urban vehicle powered by batteries makes a lot of sense. Adding autonomous to it and getting a demonstration out there, stay tuned. <laughs> and well, we will stay tuned, but we've got to wrap up this discussion right now. Dr. Alan Todd, thanks so much for coming in and sharing a bit of the future with us. Sam, thanks for coming in. Paul, thank you as well. And I'll be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. I hope you enjoyed today's show with Dr. Alan Taub, and to me it's very encouraging to see that General Motors is still so heavily involved in developing this new technology. Despite all its trials and tribulations, there's still a lot of strength in that company. On another note, we have a great way of keeping up on top of the breaking news in the global automotive industry. We call it AutoLine Daily. It's a seven-minute webcast that covers the latest news that's coming out in the industry, no matter where that news is happening. You can watch it at AutolineDaily.com or you can even sign up for our free newsletter and have it emailed to you every day. And then on Thursday nights, we do the first live weekly webcast that's ever been done in the auto industry to get the behind-the-scenes information of what's going on, the kind of stuff that's typically off the record. Highly opinionated with blunt commentary, we call it AutoLine After Hours. But that wraps up this show. For all of us here at AutoLine Detroit, thanks for watching. We'll see you right here next week.